I'm Mike Walsh, and you're listening to Between Worlds, the show that takes you over the horizon and beyond borders to bring you the global thinkers, innovators, and troublemakers whose ideas challenge the world as we know it. So I'm joined today with uh, Sean Gawley, who's the CTO and founder of Quid, and uh, very much a, a big data extraordinaire. So, you know, when we were talking before, Sean, um, you, you told me the story about how you really started off not in uh, not wearing white coats and, and studying numbers, but in the in the field of war and conflict, looking at the underlying mathematics. Um, how did a 25 year old end up telling the Pentagon how they should be running the war more effectively in Iraq? Um, yeah, it's an interesting story. I, I came across to uh, do my PhD work at Oxford. I was um, nominally there to uh, do a PhD in physics um, and uh, had, I think, all, everything lined up with the supervisor and all of that to do biomolecular motors, which are fascinating. <laughs> but I got there and, and, and walked around the lab and, and saw my life at Oxford unfold with these 15-hour lab days, and I thought, oh, Oxford's too exciting a place to be stuck in a lab. So then the very next thing I was like, right, I better find something that's theoretical, <laughs> right? I better find something that, that is not you know, me doing experiments. So there was a new branch of um, mathematical physics emerging um, that was really focused on trying to understand human dynamics. Mm. Um, and I guess it's the field of what we now call complexity and complex systems. So there was uh, a supervisor there, Neil Johnson, who was one of the professors. Um, I met him and thought, this is fantastic. You know, we'll, we'll, we'll take the tools from physics and uh, maths and use them to understand our human dynamics. So the most difficult problem that was, I think, confronting us was this, this conflict in Iraq that was unfolding hmm. that no one really understood why the strongest military in the world was you know, being taken on and you know, really oftentimes defeated by a bunch of insurgents that you know, were poorly armed, poorly trained, and so on. So it was an incredibly, I think, important problem to solve um, to understand how insurgency worked. And you know, they had a lot of um, attributes about it that lended itself towards this data-driven approach. And so that's right. kind of how we got started. But, but war, unlike buying shoes and clothes and books on Amazon, doesn't have a natural data set. Uh, where did you find the, the source information to be able to pass it? Yeah, that was sort of the first stumbling block when we we thought that the US military would, would the Pentagon would give us the information, which I think was kind of naive at the time, but... It's the old joke about military intelligence. That's but. right, that's right. <laughs> but of course, you know, that was all classified and there were we, we might have been able to get it if we jumped through many, many hoops and maybe by the time the war had finished, we might have got the data to look at. Hmm. But... It was also this realization, this is 2003, and remember that people were jumping up and down with excitement about these blogs that were coming out of Iraq. Hmm. And these, these blogs that people were recording um, what they were seeing um, and disintermediating the, the traditional media system. And, and so I started to, to think a lot about the, the distributed nature of collecting data and that the information was out there and the and the transcripts of TV shows and the blog posts that were written on the New York Times websites. And it was relatively easy to put computers at those um, systems, 
and start training the computers to looking to look for identifiers of significant events that were happening. It's almost like a genome of conflict. Yeah, that's right. So you sort of there's you're um, helped a lot because there's only so many ways to say someone died mm. in a bomb, right. right? And so as far as natural language processing goes today, it would actually be considered pretty simple. But at the time, training computers to recognize this stuff was was pretty pretty far out there. Um, but we managed to do it. And what did you discover? I mean, was yeah. there actually an underlying relationship or mathematics behind these disparate events? Yeah, so the first thing um, we discovered is, is actually if you do collect information that way, it's actually pretty effective. And we actually ended up being able to compare it thanks to the Wikilinks um, information. We found out that we actually had um, you know, very, very good fidelity of the information on the ground, um, despite not actually being there. The second thing, um, of course, once you've got that data is you know, what if any mathematical patterns exist within it. And it turns out there's some very, very striking ones in the timing and the size and the geographic um, diffusion of violence. Um, a pretty simple one that we can, you know, that, that sort of jumped out of us in, initially was what we call a power law distribution of the size of attacks. So, you know, very simply, if you plot um, the frequency of attacks versus the size of attacks um, on a log-log graph, you'll get a straight line. And that straight line repeats itself um, for every conflict, every major um, conflict that we've looked at in recent times. Um, and what's more than that, the slope of that line is um, approximately the same. So it's like, not only do we uncover a, uh, you know, a, a thing that wasn't random, we uncovered a very, very strong mathematical signature of violence that seemed to cut across religious, geographic, and political boundaries. What does that really mean? Does that mean there tends to be fewer very high-intensity conflict uh, events and, and lots of very small-scale ones? Yeah, so if you if you think... Um, now, a lot of distributions can give you that. Yeah. A Gaussian distribution can give you a few small ones and a lot, you know... Um, sorry, it can give you a few big ones, some small ones, some very, very small ones. Um, log normals can give you that, you know, different kinds of exponential functions. Hmm. Um, but, but concretely, a power law... Um, says that, and I think the thing that characterizes power laws is there's no, there's no, almost no limit to the tail. It's scale free. It keeps going. Mm -hmm. And one of the things that, that we saw from it very early on, we looked at this data and said, well, there could be a group here that is capable of just tremendous amounts of violence based on the growth and the size that they're able to get to. Now, we haven't seen it yet, but um, the, the model allows that to exist. And of course, now we see with ISIS we see effectively a nation state having emerged from um, within that violence. So ISIS is at the very edge of that power law. At the right at the edge, it's it's you know the biggest thing that we've seen, but it certainly wasn't um, unexpected that that thing could emerge, much huh. much like a magnitude nine earthquake off the coast. Of it, it's Japan. almost like power laws are the fingerprint of networks, uh, because you see them in the web, uh, the structure of the infrastructure of the internet, in viruses, in the design of cities. Yeah, power laws are the signature that you get when you have, I think, when you have systems at a global scale. Right. At a human scale, it's it's Gaussian and log normal. Hmm. Um, at a, you know, at a global scale, it tends to be power law. And power law is, it's indicative of systems that are at criticality. Hmm. And, and and criticality is if you think about water, it's water and you can heat it up and it gets um, warm. You can cool it down and it gets cold, and that's fine as long as it's within that kind of temperature range. But you heat water to a certain point and it doesn't there's become a, water anymore. There's a state change. It changes. Mm. You, you, you cool water down and it, it changes. And it's like the first time you see that, you're like, wait a second, my liquid just became solid. You know, we're very used to it, but that's kind of like crazy. 
And, you know, that, that's the kind of stuff you see these phase changes. And at phase changes um, and criticality, you get power laws emerge from that. And so when we're seeing these in our world, um, we should also be aware that on global scales, the systems we build can tip um, in and out of criticality. You know, as a decision maker, whether you're in business or in the military, getting your mind around the sheer complexity of the decisions that you have to make here is going to get increasingly difficult. And uh, I know one of the things you talk about is the difference between artificial intelligence and augmented intelligence. And I love the story you tell about uh, Gary Kasparov and that turning point when he when he when he lost uh, to Big Blue. Can, can you can you share a little bit of the story about what happened after that? Because I yeah, think that's really really so so right. So Kasparov, um, uh, you know, I think very very quickly realized that um, although he might get one more rematch against you know, Deep Blue and maybe he would be able to you know, outsmart it that one time, you know, for a human the game was over. Right? He, he knew enough to know that in a decade's time humans weren't going to be competing against machines and winning in, in chess. Um, so I think quite smartly he, he said, well, why would you want to compete against a machine when you could play with the machine? You know, or, well, posing it another way, um, what type of system would play the world's best chess? Hmm. Is it going to be a machine by itself? Is it going to be a team of humans? Is it going to be some sort of collective intelligence? Is it going to be a combination of that? So he set up a competition uh, called Freestyle Chess um, to kind of test this out. And the first competition of 48 teams from around the world showed up online to play. And um, they were broadly categorized into two groups, those that made the bet that the best thing was the biggest, baddest computer, and if the humans um, you know, just plugged it in and let it, let, left it alone, that would play the best chess. This was the headless team. The headless team, yeah, <laughs> exactly. So they call themselves headless because you know, there was, there's no human head guiding them. The other side is what the centaurs, and the centaurs believed that you know, the machines were good, but they needed a bit of guidance. You right. know, they gave you the horsepower, but they didn't give you the strategy, or they didn't give you the, uh, the, the, uh, the intuition. Um, and it really wasn't clear going into that competition who was gonna win. Hmm. Um, but as the competition went on, it became very, very clear that the centaurs were playing the best chess. And so much so that the final four teams were all centaurs. Um, and three, we knew they were grandmasters and sort of military-grade supercomputers. And the fourth chose to keep themselves anonymous. They were called Zach S, um, was their handle. And Zach S, um, as it transpired, ended up winning the tournament. And I think for me, what, what was fascinating by that was they weren't grandmasters. They were um, amateur chess players. They weren't playing on the best hardware in the world, um, but they had three different AI systems uh, running on consumer-grade computers. And <laughs> what they were able to do when they sort of asked about it, they said, well, you know, we knew that this AI system performed better in this environment. We knew that this other one was better over here. So when the system and the game moved itself into those places, we'd switch between our machines. And sometimes we'd ignore them all, right? And sometimes we'd play what we thought so was So you had best. average players with average computers, but a very good workflow. Well, that's exactly right. So it was interesting. One of them was a soccer coach, right. which I thought was fantastic. Um, he was a pretty good soccer coach. And the other one was a database administrator. So, um, you know, I think when, when you're interacting with these machines, there's, there's this... And they were using one of their dad's computers. That's right. right. They were using one of their dad's computers, which they'd borrowed um, because they had to... They didn't have three separate computers right. themselves. And I think, you know, there's this thing, right? It's like if, if someone were to say to you, who's going to play... The, what, what system of intelligence is going to play the best chess in the world? And if someone had said, you know, two amateur chess players and three consumer computers plays the best chess in the world, you wouldn't believe it. And yet, because we, we, we forget how important it is to interface with the machines, and that interface is, is what makes us successful or fail. So I think about this a lot because I, th I think it's still a very open question about what it is to be an effective 21st century leader. 
And obviously it's not enough just to have the technology and have the data. You're going to have to have the judgment to know when to listen and when not to listen to the systems that you now have. Yeah, I think that's exactly right. And, you know, the the people um, that are obsessing about this now are the fundamental hedge funds, mm-hmm. not not the uh, the Renaissance and the Two Sigmas of the world, but the Bridgewaters and the and the um, the Blue Mountain Capitals, the big funds that are fundamental. Um, but they know that the investments they're making are not going to be purely automated, mm-hmm. like the quantitative funds. So they're obsessing about how do they plug their best analysts into the best so machines. They're not trying to solve the market now. Well, people are. So like, there's still renaissance, they're still doing that. But mm-hmm. the big fundamental funds, which still move hundreds of billions of dollars, are obsessing now about how to design systems to amplify the cognitive powers of their analysts they have mm-hmm. um, making their bets. And... You know, I think I think as finance goes, so does the rest of um, uh, the industries in terms of data and algorithms. These guys tend to front run things, uh, many things. But <laughs> that's HFT. That's another that's another story. Well, I mean, I think Kevin Kelly put it well. I think he said that the people who get paid the most in the future were the ones who work best with machines. I, I think that's that's right, and it's. I think well, actually, the, the, our relationship with machines, I think, will broadly be classified into three different things. Um, there'll be those that, that can work with a machine and add something of value to the machine, right? Let, let's not pretend ourselves if I sit down with a chess playing supercomputer and um, decide I want to go against its best move, that that's any way, shape or form a good idea. I should listen <laughs> to the chess computer, right? right? I don't play, I don't know enough about the algorithms or the game or the data structures of that to question it. And I shouldn't any more than I should question the output from... Um, the output from a, a model of, of meteorolo- meteorological weather forecasting predictions, right? So you have to be pretty damn good to add anything to the best machines, right? But if you do add something, then the returns and the rewards are tremendous mm-hmm. because you've now got the best system in the world. And so the difference between the best and being second best is huge, especially in games like finance. So that's kind of one thing. There's, there's another kind of group um, which I think will have relationships. We'll be working for the algorithms. And so you see that in kind of like Mechanical Turk and you see that in... Um, Where they're feeding the data in, I said. Well, no, effectively you're doing what they call human intelligence tasks, which is um, a sort of a euphemism for um, humans uh, doing things that computers haven't yet figured out how to do. Um, is this someone driving an Uber car? No, not quite. It's more like um, uh, solving captures um, uh, to, to get logins to, to, uh, to a web page or classifying a picture right. as being... Um, safe for work or not safe for work. Things that computers kind of struggle with, but humans can very, very quickly look at. Humans can very quickly look at and make pattern recognition decisions. So there's this kind of thing of like, am I working to enhance the algorithm or is the algorithm giving me stuff that it's not smart enough to do and I'm working for the algorithm? Right. And, you know, I think, I think that kind of um, dichotomy of what's our working relationship with these algorithms... Will determine our pay scales. Well, absolutely. So the moment you get two or three cents per task that you classify as a human, if you're if you're a mechanical Turk worker, um, you get two or three million if you're driving the um, the augmented intelligence platform <laughs> at Bridgewater. And the third category? Well, the third category, I think, at the moment we're very very much, and it was where most of us will spend most of, of our time. We've been treated uh, as products by the algorithms. We're basically being bought and sold. Mm. Your your presence online is, is sold through an online ad auction in a space of about 150 milliseconds to the highest bidder. This whole real-time bidding. Yep, exactly. Yeah. Um, however, these algorithms are not making a lot of money. 
So the algorithms that drive Facebook are making um, per user about $6, right? So the, the, the pennies, right? So our relationship as products to these algorithms is, is where we are today. However, the economics of that suggests that if we started paying more money, maybe several hundred dollars, we would move from being treated as a product to treating to being an owner. And so what, what, how would I have the algorithm work for me? Right? How would I have it act in my interests rather than acting to maximize my value as a product? So, so in other words, the algorithm has become an agent for you to make your life more interesting, right. as opposed to we serving some kind of abstract economic goal for a platform. Well, and, and instead of our, um, the information being shown to us to be bought and sold so that we purchase and, and whatnot, we say, well, you know what, I'd like to be a better friend or I'd like to be challenged more about my ideas or I'd like my set of algorithms to go out and find me this information, summarize it and give it back to me. When the algorithms work for you and you're not being treated as a product, you have a very different relationship. And I think the economics at $6 suggests that a lot of people will um, jump on that and say, well, actually, I'll pay that and have that experience where the algorithms work for me. And so I think we'll start to see that now. We're seeing it already with um, virtual assistants like yeah. x.ai. You, um, you have your assistant um, at emails. It's, it's not a person. It's, it's an algorithm that works for you that acts as an assistant, hmm. right? And we're going to see more and more of that. Eventually, I guess it will move up to Uber drivers, um, which will be software <laughs> that takes you backwards and forwards. But this is very different to the binary distinction of, um, you know, I want to have do not track or I want, you know, basically to be a product. Uh, this is recognizing we live in a data-driven world, but you want the data to work for you. That's right, and it's the ownership model. I mean, all of these things, wherever technology goes, is, is ultimately you've got to follow the economic path. Mm. And I think, you know, we will start increasingly owning um, artificial intelligences, we'll start owning algorithms, and we're seeing the, the very first emergences of that. But that, that's where most of us will spend our time, we'll buy, um, we'll buy algorithms that will work for us. Um, but of the two tails, um, the uh, working, you know, working for the algorithm and crowdsource and augmenting, the algorithm at the top end, um, <laughs> that's where the extremes of the uh, the economic system... I, I love it move. in the 21st century, you know, uh, working for the man's been re replaced for working for the algorithm. Well, that's right. I mean, you get you go, if you're a factory worker now at um, at Amazon, you, uh, you know, everything's prescribed with what you have to do at every step on a, on a tablet. Yeah. I don't know if they use Amazon tablets, I guess they probably do, um, that tells you everything you have to do to put the thing in the, in the tray. And yeah. your... It's all time and motion studies. And all, you know, is Taylorism kind of like taken <laughs> to the extreme. Um, but it's things, interestingly, it's things that the computers or the robots can't do. Mm. So they don't have the fidelity to do everything, but what they've found is there are enough humans out there that can operate cheaply enough that they don't need to learn to do everything. And hence the, the, the kind of the turking of the world. Uh, in terms of uh, augmenting people's intelligence, uh, one of the incredible things you're doing now with Quid is giving people those tools in a very user accessible sort of way. Uh, can you talk a little bit about what your vision is with Quid and, and where you plan to go with it? Yeah, I mean, so for us with Quid is we focus very much on this augmented intelligence space. And for me, it's like, how do we give the people that have to make the most difficult decisions in the world a better set of tools to do that. And it was that experience of sitting around the table at the Pentagon and being with some very, very smart people, but realizing that the complexity of the conflict that was confronting us was beyond what any one mind could have understood. And then realizing the tools that we had were like Excel, PowerPoint, and, and Google searches, right? And it was like no one's built um, a set of tools to allow people to navigate and make decisions effectively in this world. Mm -hmm. So for me, that was like, wow, that, that's a place we can really make some contributions here. And then you start thinking about it, like, well, what does that machine look like? 
And so for us, it was about trying to give a, a high resolution uh, view of, of the world um, and make it accessible to a lot of people. So mm. the kinds of things that as we as data scientists would do with different kinds of clustering techniques and transformations and um, you know, complex linear algebra um, that would all wrap itself up into a bunch of machine learning algorithms, we wanted to kind of abstract that away. Because I think the moment you're in that, I mean, even, even if you have learned how to do that, which most of the world hasn't, the moment you're in that mindset, you're, you're in a very mathematical mindset. You're not in a creative exploration mindset. Right. So we wanted to kind of abstract that layer away and make the experience very visual, very tactile, um, and ultimately um, let people um, explore the data because what we found was that until you've explored it, you don't really know what you don't know. You don't know the questions that you want to ask or you don't, you're not aware of some of the complexities and nuances. And so when you give that to people, we hope that by plugging into QUID, you, you see the world in higher resolution, but you also come back with questions that are better than you started with. Well, there's something very seductive and beautiful about the visualizations because they sort of resemble these organic networks that give you a sense of the topography of a problem. Uh, which makes you, I think, see relationships you wouldn't have seen otherwise. Well, it's, it's the mapping, right? You know, we, we, we used to live in maps. If you're an oil company, the map of the world is very important. Um, there's oil in, on the west coast of Africa, so we need to go and get that oil. Um, there's oil off the coast of Venezuela, we need to go and get that oil. The, the geographic map was very important in the old industry. Um, but if you're a, an online payments company or a social network or a machine learning organization or you know, network security, right? What, what does, the, does the geographic map of the world make any sense? Like, or is, or put, it, put it another way, is that the first map that you'd go to? And so you go back and say, no, I want to map the current state of the technologies, or I want to map all the major players, or I want to map the actual network that's underlying this. And, and so what QUID does is it gives you a map of a higher dimensional world, but one that's ultimately very, very relevant for what you're doing. And so I can get every single scientific paper published um, around artificial intelligence, I can plug into that, see the state of that play, come away knowing the key papers, the key trends, and also the white spaces where nothing's being done. Hmm. I can then very quickly jump from that into all the news coming out in social media about Indian politics. And if I want, I can triangulate the two together and come up with, I'm probably the only person then who's, who's understood AI and Indian politics um, at that breadth. And, and I can then go and make decisions based on a better knowledge of that structure. So, so is the real value of it sort of knowing what you don't, learning what you don't know? I, I, one of the things for me is, you know, it always, I always try and plug into QUID and jump into a data set where I'm like, all right, there's one thing I think I've got, right? I, I'm pretty sure I've got this and it could be cricket or it could be, <laughs> it could, or it could be you know, natural language processing or something like, I, I've got this. Yeah. And I'll plug in, and I do that because every time I plug in, I find stuff that I didn't know. Yeah. I find things that are just, the reality is different to how it was in my head. And I do that enough in spaces that I think I know that it keeps teaching me the lesson that I don't know what's going on in the world. Well, I think they said Francis Bacon was the last human on earth to have reliably said to have read every book ever written. That's right. And so, <laughs> you know, it, but it's funny how much we, we think we know the space that we're in. I think the most dangerous thing... As, as an executive at a big organization is thinking you know the landscape you're in mm. when the reality is your um, mental projection is off and you know you act with a certain confidence um, when you think you know the space 
that if you don't have that arrogance, um, you probably act in a way that's more befitting of the uncertainty. That said, it's actually now, there's no real excuse not to have a very, very good detailed map of the space you're in. Mm -hmm. you, you plug into a platform like Quid, you hit a button, and then you're exploring it within you know, a few seconds. And, what, you know, what have been some of the use cases that your key clients have been using it for? So I think there's, there's some fascinating stuff um, in, um, in, in three areas. One is um, the uh, the advertising industry, and so we, we partner um, with Publicis, who's, who's, who's a big uh, big advertising um, agency and have many different uh, firms beneath them. So for them, they're, they're really fascinated about this idea. Well, you know, we, we normally run focus groups. We go and ask people, like, what do you think of manliness um, as a concept? Because we want to sell some new uh, deodorant and body spray. Um, and they'll bring people together, 30 people in a room. But they all sort of know that the people will say whatever you kind of want them to say. And <laughs> it's expensive. And what they've said, is it really representative? So they come through, but they need to do that because they need to go and pitch um, the, uh, the, the, the consumer product company about their new vision for the narrative to define that company. So that's kind of the old way, but the new way is they just plug into Quid. They say, give me all um, news articles about manliness um, tailored to this demographic, um, and let me see what narratives emerge. And there's stuff there about bullying, and there's stuff there about football and military, and is Putin more manly than Obama? And all of these things <laughs> start to emerge, and they're like, wow, this is rich. And they say, well, who owns each of these stories? Right, because I can see each cluster and say, well, who owns this? And you know what? What you're looking for is a cluster of, of stories about manliness that no one owns, right? And they say, wow, we can take that. It already exists. People already have it as an idea. No one, no brand owns it. We'll pitch that and take this company and go and own that open space. It's like finding, you know, oil that no one's seen before. They picked the Putin story, didn't they? That, that's, no, they, did, they didn't. <laughs> they, they, ended up, so they, they actually found out... Um, he, he's going to be the new, right, face, he's the gonna face, new, new, new face of Old Spice. <laughs> well, on was, a horse. He was, he was, he was, he was, he was, he was riding the, uh, the squirrel, wasn't he? Um, but then, yeah, you get these kind of wacky stories that are just not connected to anything. And like there's, like misogyny in space is never a good answer. Um, or it was never a good idea. And it was like, that's just a random story that someone wrote. So they'll often, like, you know, it saves you, I guess, um, you know, doing what creatives um, normally do, which is uh, getting drug-aided, drug <laughs> drug-aided crazy ideas. <laughs> but, yeah, I mean, this is the thing, right? It's like, what would you know if you read every single story about manliness? Yeah. What would you know? And you would know where there were opportunities and you know where there were kind of crazy ideas that were maybe just crazy enough to work. And that's, the, that, that's, I think, the future is driving through that, seeing that information and converting it into something that's actionable so that when you go in and pitch that company and say, here's our idea, they're like, wow, that's, that's really good, mm. right? But you already know it was because the world's done the experiment for you. So you can flip from that right back to um, you know, plugging in call transcripts from a, from a credit card company with people on the help desk and finding out that people get really annoyed when the numbers rub off because... Um, because they can't read it to type it into their computer, right? right? And we need to make a, you know, fully 6% of all calls in the last 12 months are about the numbers being filed off on a credit card and not being able to see them closely when you try and enter on your iPhone, right? And it's like from the, from the kind of, you know, very, very practical through to the, uh, the very, very big picture. Hmm. Um, the data will tell us many stories if only we find ways to see it all. So, so when you think about the availability of these tools over the next couple of years, who do you think the most valuable employees in an organization will be? I think, you know, first and foremost is um, the, 
I think there's two types of employees. You have to ask yourself, are you someone whose job it is to optimize the space you're in or is are you someone whose job it is to uncover new space? Mm. Or are you zero to one or are you one to 100? Mm. And, you know, both are very, very valuable. Um, I spend a lot of time working with people whose job it is to go from zero to one. And they have a very difficult role because um, the chances of getting to one are low um, and no one really believes that they can, but yet they've still got to. And they're the ones that have to create new products, open new markets, you know, make new bets. Um, and they can be incredibly valuable because they can be the ones that turn Apple from a computer company into a mobile technology company. You know, they can be the ones that, that may turn Google from a, um, from a search company into a logistics um, company driven by self-driving cars, right? So those bets can open up tens of billions of dollars of value. And I think they're ultimately gonna be the ones that are very, very important as we move into faster technology change, changing landscape. So how do we give people the better tools that have to go from zero to one? How do we give them data? and platforms that allow them to make big swings and big bets, but to reduce that risk. Because, you know, something that's risky of, as, as one, in a, one in a million is, is probably beyond things. But if you can use data to make it one in 50, that may be a bet you really want to take. And if data can kind of point us in those directions, you know, what, what seems like a one in a million bet will actually be actually something we can stomach because the reality is once we've got the information, it's actually only one in 50. So I think people, that are able to use machines to effectively orientate themselves around complex spaces and are very adept at knowing when the machines work and when they don't, know when to trust themselves and when, when to defer to the machine, and ultimately can better predict where the world is going to be by using the data today about where the world is, they're going to be the ones that are able to unlock billions of dollars. Um, and you know that's that that I think is if if I was uh, if I was a betting man that's where I put my money. <laughs> Sean, it's fascinating stuff. Uh, thanks for being on the show. Yeah, cheers, buddy. Thanks. thanks. You've been listening to Between Worlds. For more episodes and information on how to subscribe to our podcast, please visit www.mike-walsh.com/slash-between-worlds.